title of my sermon this morning is, What is Pneumatology? What is pneumatology? Now, I know that word sounds a lot like something that Tom Cruise would be real interested in. You know, that he would be, uh, uh, you know, parading around pneumatology. But we're not talking about Scientology. That's an entirely different uh, idea here. We're talking about pneumatology. And I'll explain uh, what that word means here in just a little bit. But William Hendricks used to be the professor at Southern Seminary. And in his theology classes, he began his study of the different doctrines with a question to frame the student's thinking. You know, like before you uh, complete, before you pick out your, your dishes or your towels, before you do all those last things, you have to start with the big picture and kind of build the framework. And that's what he would do in his class. And he would ask the question. And when he came to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, he asked this question, which I found to be very helpful. How is God made real in every age? How is God made real in every age throughout all the centuries and all the different things that our world has gone through? How does God show himself to be real in every age? And his answer was through the Holy Spirit. How? Because the Holy Spirit is the one who awakens spiritual life in us. Paul says we are dead. Our spiritual life has to be awakened. It has to be quickened before we can respond because we are in that state. The Holy Spirit also convicts us of sin. We talked about our conscience this morning. God gives us a conscience But we also, when we come to faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit lives in us, we have the Spirit that guides us and convicts us when we have gotten off track that says you need to come back to where you're supposed to be. The Holy Spirit calls us to repent. And the Holy Spirit permanently indwells every follower of Christ. So another question might be, how do we come to know God? Through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit that lives Within us, the scripture tells us that the spirit of the living God lives within the people of God. Let me say that again, because that's something that we take for granted in churches today. Think about what I'm saying. The spirit of the living God lives within the people of God. So what does that mean? We need to get to the bottom of that question and find out what does it mean for God to live inside you? Because if God lives inside you, that means you're something completely otherworldly than what you were before you became a Christian. You're not the same. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5.17? If any man is in Christ, he is a what? He's a new creation. That word new doesn't mean time. It means a different type. A completely different restructured being from the inside out. So over the next six weeks, we're going to study this doctrine of the Holy Spirit, or as theologians call it, Pneumatology. So quick quick background, the word pneumatology comes from two Greek words. The word pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, it means the spirit or the wind. And then ology, of course, you know, means the study of something. So when we talk about the, the study of pneumatology, it's the study of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Now, you've heard some, some big words and some bantering about, you know, thing. before you say, wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. It's the weekend. And my brain is on cruise, and I'm not ready for all this. Anything that ends with ology, that comes on Monday, okay? If that's you this morning, I want to say this to you. If you have repented of your sin, if you've turned away from sin and turned to Jesus and said yes to his free offer of salvation, which is made available to anyone who will repent, if you have done that, then listen, the Holy Spirit lives inside you. That's the promise of the Scripture. So if something is living in my house at home, I want to know what it is, right? Amen? Carrie called me about a year ago, and she said, you need to come home quick. There's a snake in our house. What do you think I did? 
I dropped everything I was doing, jumped in my car, and risked getting a ticket because I don't want a snake living in my house. I hate snakes. I mean, go back to Genesis chapter 3. Amen? Okay, so I want snakes out of my house. So if something's living in my house, I need to know what it is. So let's give you more personal. If something or someone is living inside you, shouldn't you understand who he is? Not it, but who he is and what he does and what he wants to do in you. And what he expects of you and how he changes you. If he is living in you because you've said no to sin and yes to Jesus. Surely to goodness you're going to want to say well i got to figure out what this thing is. This person is living inside of me. So I want to start with a general framework this morning. We're going to frame in the house and we'll fill it in. Uh, and I might let some of you ladies pick out the towels and dishes and things as we get to the end. So we'll begin by de- defining a few key terms. We're going to examine some misconceptions that we do not find in the scripture on the spirit. And then we're going to look at what the Bible teaches in regard, listen, to the personhood, the personhood of the spirit. You say, what in the world does that mean? Your personhood is who you are. So we need to figure out a little bit about who the Bible says the spirit is. Now, all that said, I'm not going to keep you here for six hours. I promise. I promise. I'll hear your stomachs growling and you'll hear mine over the mic. And there's absolutely no way that we can even begin to plumb the depths of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. That that doctrine runs so deep, we'll never get there. There's no well drilling system in this county or world that can drill down that deep. But my hope is that we would grow individually and we would grow corporately as a church body as we see what this book says about the Holy Spirit. Why do we need to see what this book says? Because movies like Star Wars, sadly, have shaped our understanding of the Spirit. And there are people, maybe even people in these pews today, that operate not based off of what this says about who the Holy Spirit is, but what George Lucas told you about who the Holy Spirit was back in 1977. And he, he kind of you know, masqueraded it as the force. And so we need to look at what the Spirit really is. Is. So let's start with our key terms. I'm going to ask you to please hang with me. The theology lecture, I promise, will come back around and, and it will end. We will land the plane in sermonic form, if you will. But please hang with me. Number one, the word spirit has five basic meanings. I'm not going to unpack all of them. Give them to you quickly. Five basic meanings. Number one, it can refer to the wind. So in the Old Testament, we see the word ruach. It's kind of fun to say because of the, the H there on the end. We see the word ruach. Okay, and that means the wind. So most of the time when you see the word spirit in the Old Testament, it's talking about the wind. Okay, the spirit of God describes uh, describes the spirit there. Jesus also referred to the spirit with the metaphor of the wind. Second, the word spirit can be a disposition or an attitude. So the spirit that you come to church with. Okay, we also describe that in the scripture as the heart. Okay, so the heart behind a person or the heart behind how they are approaching it. Number three. Spirit can refer to the human spirit. And every one of us has the human spirit living within us that gives us the capacity to have a relationship with God who he himself is spirit. I say, okay, so if we're going to have a relationship with God who is spirit, we have to have a spirit that is alive in us that connects with the spirit of God. Number four, the word spirit can refer to spirits or spiritual beings. So we see in the New Testament a lot of talk when the kingdom of God comes in Christ, there's a lot of demonic activity. What do we call those? Unclean 
spirits. There's that word. So that's the fourth meaning it can have. But this fifth meaning is the one we're going to zero in on and lock in uh, in our study. And the fifth meaning of the word spirit is the divine sense of the spirit of God. It is the godness of God, the deity of God. Second, we need to talk about this word holy. In my time as a kid's pastor, I discovered that there were a number of children that just innately thought that holy was the first name of the spirit. And so if, if, if you know, Holy Spirit had a tag that said, hello, my name is, it would say holy, first name, spirit, second name. That's not what the scripture teaches. But also there's a thing with this word holy. There's a thing with this word holy. We toss the word holy around so cheaply and so flippantly today, don't we? We even approach God. We're supposed to be holy as he is holy, 1 Peter 1, uh, 15. We use that word so cheaply and flippantly, though, that we forget what it means. The word holy is an adjective. It is an adjective that is found mostly in the New Testament describing the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God is a holy spirit. The Spirit of God is a holy spirit. Holy means to be set apart. It means to be sacred. In the Old Testament, we see the phrase Holy Spirit used how many times? Three. Twice in Isaiah and once in Psalm 51. Remember when David said, take not your Holy Spirit from me? Three times in the Old Testament. You know how many times we see these two words together in the New? Almost 100 times. Does that mean that we have a different God from the Old and New Testament? Not at all. None at all. It's just a described in a different way because there's a, the coming of the kingdom of Christ. And so when Jesus came, we said already that there were so many unclean spirits, so much demonic activity. So when we call the Spirit of God the Holy Spirit, there is a key distinction between the unclean spirits in the world that are wreaking havoc on this world and, and causing us to stumble into sin versus the Holy Spirit that we see describing the sacredness of of God. It is this Holy Spirit, don't miss this. It is this Holy Spirit that lives within you that daily renovates your heart. Okay? I can say sanctifies, and you may say, well, what does sanctifies mean? If I say renovates, that's a modern vernacular word of what it means. What does renovate mean? You go inside and you change things around, you fix it up, you make it new. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible doesn't say renovate. The Bible says what? Sanctify. What does sanctify mean? We've been set apart. When the Spirit comes to live in you, God is doing a work where He's just not shuffling the chairs around and changing the rugs and the drapes. He is remaking you daily into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it begins in here. So sometimes we look in the mirror and we go, man, I just don't see it. We're a work in progress, aren't we? Philippians 1.6. Paul said, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in who? You and me will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes back, that's when we will be finished. So how does that work continue through our lifetime? Through the Holy Spirit. That's why it's so important for us to understand that God is making us holy day by day. Third term we need to look at, this is a fun one, I loved studying this one this week, is the word paraclete. Paraclete. This is not the same thing uh, that you have hanging in your kitchen making all kinds of racket and making, you know, strowing seeds all over the floor. I was at Thelma Owen's house 
uh, before she passed, and, and uh, she was still doing well enough to be at home, and I went to visit with her, and I heard something in her kitchen, I said, Thelma, what in the world is in your kitchen? I, I thought a possum had got in there, so I said, what in the world is in your kitchen? And she said, oh, it's my, it's my parakeet, I believe it was. And so this little boy comes up, and name was James, she called him Jamie, knocks on the door, and he walks into the house like he lives there, and I'm kind of looking at him, watching him, like, you know, and he throws his hand up, and Thelma says, hey, Jamie, and I realize they knew each other. He's about 10 years old. He walks right in the kitchen, gets the broom, gets the dustpan, <coughs> leans down under this cage, and starts to clean up this mess that this parakeet is making in her kitchen. And he comes in, and he sits down like he's about 60 and just has conversation with us. And I'm like, all right, I didn't know they made him like that anymore, but okay. But we're not talking about something that makes a mess in your life. We're talking about someone, not a parakeet, but a paraclete that comes in and cleans things up and defends you. He's your advocate. This is the new name Jesus gives in John 14 for the Spirit. The word paraclete means called alongside to help. Called alongside to help. So you think about paratroopers, paramedics. We have a number of paramedics in our church, praise the Lord. Parachurch ministries. I was involved with Campus Crusade for Christ. It's a parachurch ministry. Is that the church? No. Did Jesus die for Campus Crusade for Christ, the organization? No. The people within that are believers, yes. But that comes alongside the church to assist who? Us. The church in our mission of reaching people and building them up to greater and deeper faith in Christ. So all these come alongside. A paraclete is also someone who comes along to help with strength. The King James, if you have the King James, you're going to see this described as the comforter. The comforter. So when I say comfort in 2017, here's what I think about. I think about a nice soft couch and low light and maybe a cold lemonade and a pillow under my arm. You know, That's what I think about. The word comfort in 1611 didn't mean any of those soft, nice, cushy things. It actually meant something completely the opposite. It comes from two Latin words. And see, in that day, the language was tied much more closely to the Latin than it is today. It had the word calm and forte. Calm and forte. Calm with forte. If something is your forte, it is your what? Strength. Comes with strength. Fitting description of the Holy Spirit. Because did Jesus say, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you after you've gone through the battle, after you're beat up and bedraggled and ready just to give up? No. He said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you in the middle of the battle so you have someone to come alongside you with strength. So what do you have when you're in the hospital room if you're a believer in Christ? The comforter. The one who comes with strength. What do you have when things are going south in your home with a child or with a marriage? What do you have? Someone that comes with strength. So when we say you're not alone, that's not a trite Christian phrase that we just throw away and say, oh, you're going through this thing, but you're not alone. Don't you worry. We're saying the Holy Spirit is inside you. And that means you're not by yourself. The one who comes with strength is standing alongside you. Another interesting note about this word. In the ancient world, this word paraclete actually described a defense attorney. A defense attorney. And this wasn't a one-time use. It was someone that a family was connected to on a long-term retainer basis. So if you got in trouble, you know what the family did? They picked up their iPhone and they called the paraclete. No iPhones were around back then. Picked up their 
their, their smoke signal or whatever. And they called the paraclete and they said, hey, we need you. Come in and help us. And the paraclete came alongside and advocated for this member of the family and did that for the duration of their life. What does that teach us about the Holy Spirit? When the Holy Spirit comes in and he advocates for you, there is never a day when the Holy Spirit is in there that he checked out and turned in the keys and you missed them. He's always there. Always advocating on your behalf. He is our defense attorney who defends us when we stumble and when we struggle. That gives us a good starting point. We'll move just a tad quicker. But we need, we need, I want to get through this, this, this information. I love it. The second thing is a few key misconceptions that we need to clear up. Number one, some people say the Holy Spirit, uh-uh, be cautious. The Holy Spirit is for fanatics. and We don't want any of that around here. Does the Bible say that anywhere? Not one time. But see what happened in the 70s. There was this movement in the Pentecostal and charismatic believers, you know, folks that trusted Christ and believe in him, but they overemphasized some things with the Holy Spirit. And I think we've swung the pendulum too far back the other way. And so we're afraid of some things that we see on TV. Might they be not biblical? Yes, they may not be. Do we do everything that is exactly perfect and biblical? No. But we don't need to swing it out and say, you know, let's just throw the baby out with the bath. Let's just throw the Holy Spirit out. It's not for fanatics. He's the third person of the Trinity that lives within us. Second, some say the Spirit is a New Testament idea, a New Testament teaching. Genesis 1-2. We can take this really quickly. The Spirit of God was doing what? Hovering over the face of the waters. That's the same Spirit in the old and the same Spirit in the new. And He's there before anything was created. The prophets said their ministry was due to the Spirit. Isaiah said the Messiah would be anointed by the Spirit. The Old Testament, what do we see? The Spirit enabling people to do things they can never do on their own. The Spirit is working within them in the Old Testament. This is not a New Testament idea. Number three, we've kind of touched on this one. But the Spirit is some kind of mystical, impersonal force. And you can't really know it. You just sort of work with it. Now, that's Eastern philosophy. It's not the teaching of the scripture. And sadly, George Lucas has influenced more of our theology sometimes than we allow the Bible to influence our theology. The Spirit has a personality. The Spirit has a mind. The Spirit has a will. Ephesians 4.30 says our sin, let this break your heart, our sin grieves the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit was impersonal, could he be grieved? Not at all. He would not be saddened if he was just an impersonal, abstract force that you could not know. Number four, the Spirit is somehow less than divine. That's not what the Scripture teaches at all. The Scripture ascribes deity to the Holy Spirit. He does things that only God can do, like convict us of sin, regenerate spiritual life, sanctify us in Christ. The Spirit is described as eternal, omnipotent omniscient, omnipresent. All of those things are attributes that if you were going to describe God, you would say, well, God's eternal. God's omniscient. He knows everything. God's omnipotent. He's all powerful. God's omnipresent. He's everywhere at one time. Well, what does the Bible say about the Spirit? All those things. So logically, what does that teach us that the Spirit is? The Spirit is God. He is divine. Fifth, we'll touch on this one much later. But there's an idea that the baptism of the Spirit is a sort of special experience that is separate from your conversion and happens after your conversion and is oftentimes evidenced by speaking in tongues. Pentecostals in the Assembly of God churches teach that following conversion, 
A person receives the baptism of the Spirit, which empowers them for effective witness. Acts 1.8 says that, but it doesn't describe after that that's going to happen. It's not separate from conversion. So I don't see where the Scripture prescribes speaking in tongues as something every believer has to do. It's not prescribed, told to us to do as normative in the Christian life. Rather, I understand Scripture to teach that the baptism of the Spirit is when you come to Christ, you receive the Spirit, and you are baptized into the body of Christ through that Holy Spirit that comes to live in you when you repent of your sin. And so possessing that Spirit at the moment of your true conversion, when you possess that Spirit, the Spirit begins to work on you. It begins to sanctify you. That way, I understand all believers, if you turn to faith in Christ, all believers experience the baptism of the Spirit. Now, there's some others we could discuss, but hopefully that will clear up a little bit of confusion as we get started. And I want to say this. I'm sure in this room that there are some differences of opinion, even within the 200 of us, about maybe even some of the misconceptions I've said. That's okay. That's totally okay. But let's make sure that we base it on this, this book, and not our own experience or what granddad said or something of that nature. We need to base it on the Scripture. So moving along, I'm going to end our study by looking briefly at this question. Is the Holy Spirit a person? Now, I've already answered that for you, but I want you to hang with me. This is fascinating. This question reflects back on misconception number three. But we need to understand the Holy Spirit is a person that lives in us, that we can know, that we can cultivate a relationship with. How do we steer away from sin in our lives? By walking in the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. If we walk in the Spirit, listen to this word, we will not gratify the desires, the sinful desires of the flesh. So how do we stay away from sin and how do we walk in the Spirit? We stay closely tied to the Word of God. We stay in prayer. We do all of those things in and through the empowering and the filling of the Holy Spirit of God. So we need to know who He is. We say, well, where do you see evidence for that? Number one, this is fascinating. Listen to this. The writers of the New Testament use the masculine pronoun throughout the New Testament to describe the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 15, 16, when Jesus references the Spirit, what does Jesus say? He. Jesus says, He. He will come. He will do these things. He will teach you. He will sanctify you. He will guide you. The Holy Spirit, Jesus says, is a He. That's good enough for me. Is it good enough for you? Number two. The term paraclete that Jesus used for a counselor, advocate, helper, comforter is a legal defense attorney. Listen, that was attorney. That was an actual person with an actual function in another actual person's life. This is not an impersonal force. When the Holy Spirit comes to live within you, there is an actual function that the Holy Spirit is carrying out in you, making you into the image of Jesus day by day by struggling day. He is an actual person that is doing actual work in you. Aren't you glad? And when I looked in the mirror this morning and thought back on the, the struggles and the stumbles and the failures and the weakness and the sin in my life, just in 24 hours, I'm so glad that the Holy Spirit doesn't go, oh man, you really disappointed me on that one. I'm done with you. I'm so glad that there's not a checklist. And at the end of the day, he goes, nope, you didn't pass the test. Jesus passed the test for us. Jesus passed the test at Calvary. Jesus went to the cross and took my sin, took your sin, so that, guess what? You can receive this Holy Spirit at the moment that you say, 
I don't want this self and Satan and sin anymore. I want to be made new. Is there a magic prayer that you prayed for the Holy Spirit to come in? Not at all. The Holy Spirit knows your heart. And He knows when that quickening and that awakening is being, being, being prepared in your life so that you come to a place where you go, I don't want this old life anymore. I want that Holy Spirit in the New Testament to come in and live in my heart and to change me and to work on me. And I can trust based on the Word of God. He will never leave me because He loves me. Number three, the Holy Spirit is involved in personal activities that no force could do on their own. The Spirit teaches, John 14. The Spirit bears witness, John 15, Romans 8. The Spirit, listen to this. Aren't you glad about this? The Spirit prays for you. When you don't know what to say, when you're overwhelmed with grief, when the news is so bad, when the day is dark and the clouds roll in, guess who is praying for you? Romans 8, 26, the Holy Spirit is uttering words for you that are deeper than we can even understand with our own minds. And the Holy Spirit is God and He's talking to the Father on behalf of you because Jesus lives, the Spirit of Jesus lives within us. That's awesome news. He distributes gifts to believers, 1 Corinthians 12. He forbids certain activities. Think of Paul in Acts 16. He speaks. He empowers God's people. He is grieved over our sin. So I want to draw all this together with this wonderful quote. I don't know who said it, but I found it this week. And I think it captures our framework study this morning. Please hang with us and listen. The study of pneumatology is of immense benefit to the Christian. In the pages of Scripture, we come face to face with the third person of the Trinity. God Himself in spirit. And we see His very personal, intimate ministry to us. Through Him, we come to know God's love for us. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. By who? By the Holy Spirit. Who was given to us, Romans 5. We find joy in His role as our comforte, comforter, John 16, Acts 9. Who comes to our rescue when our hearts are so burdened, we cannot even pray for relief. Praise God. When we pursue the knowledge of the Holy Spirit, listen to this. We find to our great delight that He not only lives within us, but He does so forever, never to leave us or forsake us. John 14, 16. All these truths are burned into our hearts when we study pneumatology. Why do we spend the time on a doctrine, on something that's, that's put in front of seminary students? Because it's not just... For seminary students. It's for every person who wants to be under the blood of Christ and is not yet. Or perhaps has been under the blood of Christ for 75 years and says, I want to know more. I want to go deeper. I want to love him more. I want the, the love of God to be more evident in my life. How does that happen? Through the Holy Spirit. So I know in some ways this last half hour has felt a lot like a theology lecture, perhaps, to some of you. But here's where it shifts from being academic and theoretical to intensely personal and intensely practical. I want to leave you with two questions this morning that I don't want you to pass over. Maybe even jot them down and pray over them. Bill Bright said to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be filled with Christ. I believe he's correct. We cannot belong to Christ if we don't possess the Spirit in our hearts. Two questions for you this morning to consider. Number one. Have you repented of your sin personally 
I'm not asking if you hold a position. I'm not asking if your granddad held a position or put the bricks in place to stand this building up. I'm asking do you personally know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you've traded in your sin and Jesus gave you his righteousness. Because if you have done that, then listen, the Holy Spirit has come to take up permanent residence in your heart. If you have not done that, if you have not said yes to Jesus, if you have not repented of your sin, listen to me clearly. You stand in danger of the fires of hell. I don't say that tritely. I don't say that in passing. If you do not have the Holy Spirit living within you, you are not sealed by God. You are not in God. You're not under the blood of Christ. You stand under condemnation. And that is a serious matter. Number two, if you've made that decision to follow Jesus, but listen to me, you know in your heart, you know that there's an area that you've not been surrendering over to the Spirit. That you've not been yielded to the Spirit. That you've shut a door and said, Spirit, you're not coming in here. Guess what? The Bible says that don't work. Where can I go from your Spirit? David said, nowhere. The Holy Spirit, if He's living within you and you're trying to shut Him out, He's saying, let me in, let me in, let me in. If there's a place in your mind, if there's a place in your life, if you're driving habits... <laughs> are such that you are sinning because you can't get to work on time and the Spirit is saying, hey, hey, listen, that's not okay. Stop. That's not too small. We don't brush that aside. The root issue of any unyieldedness is we're saying no to God. Don't say no to God anymore. Say yes today. So here's how we're going to close. During our song, I'll ask Emily to come on up and get ready. As we sing our closing song, I love this song. Discovered it in seminary. It's called How Deep the Father's Love for Us. How vast beyond all measure. Love the song. Love the words. Reflect on the words. Sing them as a prayer to God. If you need to say yes to Jesus for the first time and you said, I don't know for certain that the Spirit lives in me, take care of that today. Come to this altar. Make that decision. Stand in front of this congregation and say, I'm putting my, my, everything I got in, in Jesus today. If you need to be yielded to the Spirit in some area of your life and you say, I've been keeping this back. I've been keeping it back. I've not been turning it over, but today I'm coming and I'm laying it down. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. Come to this altar this morning. Physically, come down to this place. Say, well, I'm uncomfortable doing that. I'm uncomfortable standing up here for 30 minutes. Were it not for the Spirit of God, I don't think I could do this. If it were not for the Spirit of God, you couldn't lay it down either. If the Spirit of God is saying to you, lay it down. Oh, but it's just so small. Lay it down. I want to ask you to be obedient today. I want you to stand. I'm going to close in prayer and then we will sing. And I want to ask you to respond however the Spirit of God leads you this morning. Stand with me and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is truth. And we thank you for the precious spirit that 
we have spent a little time this morning, just a little time studying that guides us into truth and sanctifies us in your truth, which is your word. Let us stand on your word, Father. And if some area of our life is out of line and we're drifting toward the ditch of sin, we want to come this morning and lay it down and ask you to do a Holy Spirit alignment in our lives. I know I need it, Lord. Like that song says, I I see myself straying and drifting every day. And I'm thankful that you've made me a debtor to your grace. Your love is so deep for us. Your spirit pours that love out in our hearts. If we're a believer in Christ, it's the, 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 the key mark that Paul and Jesus in Corinthians 13 and John 13 said that the world would see in us. Father, help me to love better through the power of the Spirit. Lord, I pray this morning that this group of people would be influenced by nothing else, no other desires, desire to be yielded and obedient to the Spirit of God. This time is your time. It is sacred time. We take it seriously, God, because you take your Spirit and your Word and our sanctification seriously. We love you, Father. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.